0: Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato with my uh, co-host and partner in crime, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And uh, we're super excited about our episode tonight. Uh, we have a very distinguished guest. Robin Farzad is here. And um, he is, uh, if you look at his uh, resume, very impressive dude. We're here to talk about his book, Hotel Scarface. But just to give him a shout-out, graduate from Princeton University and Harvard Business School, <laughs> So, so not too, not too shabby, Robin. Uh, he's uh, he's um, uh, appeared on uh, CNN, uh, PBS, C-SPAN. He he covered uh, um, part of his reporting beat for Business Week was uh, Africa, uh, the Middle East, Latin America. So, pretty impressive, dude. We're super excited to have you here, Robin, and talk about uh, your book, Hotel Scarface. Where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to uh,
1: to uh, control uh, Miami. This is everything I want in a true crime book. It's real life stories. It's stuff that pops off the page. It's stuff that combines pop culture that, that there are reference points for and touchstones for that tie into the threads that make the story. I mean, if you're someone that a loves the movie Scarface B loves Miami, which what's there not to love and, you know, C uh, ever saw the, the, the documentary cocaine cowboys or, or watch Miami Vice and love Miami Vice. I mean, this is just in that wheelhouse. It hits every mark, and just the narrative is perfectly spun. Uh, and I, I'm just, I'm really, I'm kind of awestruck by the fact that that we have the author. Oh, man, <laughs> it's right here. Yeah, you want, you want to tell us, uh,
0: Robin, how you started this project and everything? Let me tell you by way of reference. I actually wish I
2: could talk about it a lot more. It wasn't received as well as I thought it would be. And I don't mean to complain, but I threw years and years into this thing and I thought it would i thought it would hit bigger. I know
1: all about it, my friend. I've had six books published and <laughs> a couple of them I thought for sure were going to be bestsellers and they didn't sell at all. So yes.
2: But, but in the end, I got to write, and this will resound with you too, I got to write the book I needed to write, that I wanted to write. There was a lot of pressure, make it about a single protagonist or antagonist why don't you make the place a whorehouse, like legend had it? And uh, I pushed back. I survived so many different editors, publisher bankruptcies, and everything. And as brutal as it was to write, and I've since repressed a lot of the memory, I'm proud when I read it, and I love to talk about it. So I jump on any chance to talk about it.
1: Robin, believe me, this starting to, to no, jump. No, it's fine. Yeah. Jb, I'll throw it back to him. But I mean, if this thing. And I don't know what your business is like, and I'm not trying to jinx it because I'm someone out there trying to get my stuff optioned and turned into film and television. But this thing is just, you know, in my opinion, you know, just tailor made for a film or a television adaption. I mean, again, it just it checks every box. And if you're someone that loves learning the true story uh, behind um, movies and television. This is the true story really of the, the climate, the atmosphere, the real characters that inspired Scarface.
0: Yeah. When I was reading it, I I mean, I, I, the whole time I'm thinking this has to be a TV, this has to be turned into a TV show or film or something. So we, we, I definitely want to ask you about that, but let's start from the beginning. I mean, what inspired you to, to to start researching this, this, this topic in this book?
1: Let me just give one quick, uh, note to our audience. And then we'll jump in just so people know this, this, this movie, hopefully it will be a movie. (laughs) This book, um, chronicles this era of, of the cocaine Cowboys in Miami, but through the lens of a hotel and a club, uh, the hotel was called the mutiny and the club was in the, uh, you know, the first level and second level of the hotel and was the was the basis for the Babylon club in Scarface. So he decided to tell, tell the story of the cocaine Cowboys, but from a totally different perspective and and making ground zero, the place where they partied at as, you know, the central part of the narrative. So now let's, I just want people to know, and then let's jump into it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Tell us more Robin. Uh, I grew up in Miami. I came here as an immigrant from Iran in the end of 1978. And as I tell many people, I, You know, I experienced a lot of this with the rest of America, Friday nights watching Miami Vice. Uh, But then something happened, and I don't want to give, you know, spoiler alert, uh, I found this abandoned property just as I was leaving for college. And every time I was homesick in college and I, you know, scratched the homesickness itch, I went back and looked at the address, and it would show up in informant reports and police busts, and you would just hub and spoke and realize that this is where so much of modern Miami it was effectively born, right? I mean, if you look at the skyline of Miami in 1980, just overlay it. I'm sure you guys can do it versus 2020. It's unrecognizable. It was a sleepy, sunbelt city, uh, you know, right before the Mariel refugee crisis, and everything had transpired. And then within a year becomes the murder capital of the hemisphere. Um, Miami Vice is on the scene within two, three years. De Palma and Pacino are at the mutiny looking to research for Scarface, so Suddenly, all of these things happened, and I was fascinated in how this place effectively hosted the generations of of gangsters that vied for control of the cocaine trade.
1: Yeah, I mean— uh, it- They were all there. I mean, every titan of the cocaine industry in South Florida was, you know, posting up at the mutiny at night. And and another, another interesting aspect, and I'm interested, uh, Robin, to get your— Uh, opinion on this is this uh, the hotel, the Mutiny Hotel was opened in Coconut Grove in 1969, correct?
2: It was called the Sailboat Bay Apartments and then the owner opened up he had the crazy luck of opening up this club in 1972 when the Dolphins had their perfect season, when there was an oil shock and all these Venezuelans coming to town reefer
1: madness So, one of the things I found interesting and from kind of a socio- academic or, uh, you know, cultural trends. And this might be a small digression, so excuse me, but I know that everyone, at least to my knowledge, points to Ian Schrager, who was the owner of studio 50, studio 54. And after studio 54, and he had to go to jail for some of the stuff that was going on in 54, came out reinvented himself as a hotelier. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Robin, the common belief or the common narrative is that he invented the concept of the boutique hotel. But I'm looking at the mutiny and the way that the mutiny hotel was arranged where every room had a different theme, right. and there was this exclusivity, but it wasn't a chain. I mean, would you say that it's accurate that 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 Burton Goldberg and and the mutiny was actually really the first boutique hotel before it started to happen in New York? He would probably argue
2: that if he were still alive. Yeah. He <laughs> passed away a few years ago, but I got to interview him, and one he said, "I would call it the sex hotel if I could." <laughs> but you know, it's got to be classy. But what what he what he realized that that you know he was he was frustrated in his desire. This is the backstory to build this island called Fair Isle opposite the mutiny. There was this island that was going to develop it. He didn't grease enough palms. So in his heartbreak, when he realized that the hotel, the uh, the condominium apartments was all that he'd have, he threw himself headlong into becoming a nightclub mogul. And again, the dumb luck of doing that in the year when you had the Republican nominating convention there, the perfect season bound Miami Dolphins, all sorts of press coming to town, horny, horny Venezuelan moguls, coming into town while there's an oil shock. Uh, All these perfect things kind of combusted in that atmosphere. And there wasn't South Beach. There wasn't any club scene. Wynwood, you know, Upper East Side Design District. That was just not there. And there's this recording studio next door with Fleetwood Mac and with Joe Walsh and all these people. And so you have this environment of celebrity and sex and drugs. And he's like, have at it. I'm going to (laughs) cater to that fantasy. And When He he anticipated that correctly in the early 70s, and he realized, as the designer of the room said, that we could cater to the fantasy of the upwardly mobile Latin male. You know, the rich Venezuelan who comes in, the nickname was the Dame Dos. I have all this money. Give me two of this. Give me two. Give me two. Give me two. So you'd go to the Mutiny. You'd take over the King Tut room, and you'd, you'd fill it up with champagne, and you'd tell everybody that I'm DTF, and I got all the money in the world, and... It was the sexual revolution. It was pre-AIDS. And so, yeah. Uh, but then a lot of legitimate people stayed there. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, celebs, Don Marie Marie, and Donny Osmond, when they were passing through town. This was the, yes, the boutique hotel to stay in. I don't know if he coined it. He himself would say that he would take different parts. He'd be on uh, in Paris and he'd see something. He'd see like a mime uh, climbing a building and he'd take that. He'd try the sourdough rolls from a place in New Orleans and he would take that. So it was like this Frankenstein hospitality thing from everything he visited around the world.
0: So uh, one thing that I think is interesting is how, so definitely some of these guys are are gangsters and uh, something you talk about in the book, I think is interesting. I wanted to ask you about if you could walk, walk us through it and hopefully it'll inspire people to go read the book. But a lot of these guys start off as marijuana traffickers. So I think we, we think of the, the, this this hotel and this era as they're they're all coke dealers, but not necessarily, not at the beginning.
1: Well at it, least. it became the, it went from the square grouper era to the cocaine cowboys era. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of the same players were just transitioning from marijuana to to cocaine. I mean, look at Pablo Escobar, look at El Chapo, the George, two, George Young. Yeah. And uh you know, and you can even trace it back even further to, you know, the Prohibition era where a lot of those guys that were expert bootleggers, when Prohibition went by the wayside, those guys just started bootlegging narcotics as opposed to bootlegging alcohol. So, yeah, it's a similar, you know, skill set.
0: Yeah. Tell us about that, that, how the guys in Miami were the, the transition from marijuana to
2: cocaine, Robin. Well, take the transition from Sunbelt to marijuana to begin with. Very few people realize that Miami in the early 60s was the CIA's major operation, at least in the United States, in this hemisphere. Everybody was girding for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro, that it wasn't going to end at the Bay of Pigs. And so the CIA trained these uh, Cuban exiles largely to know every inch of Florida coastline like the back of their hands. They knew about evasion. There's certain people who knew how to paint a, a water line on a kind of a shrimp boat to make it look less heavy than it was if they were carrying arms and contraband. Uh, these are people who were trained to attack and evade. And so by the time they realized that under Jimmy Carter that there wasn't going to be a rematch, Cuba was definitely backburnered. Uh, a lot of them became prolific pot smugglers. They used the mothership, you know, uh, a couple miles offshore. There'd be an enormous tanker offloading these bales of square groupers Scott brings it up and if you're a shrimp person like I say in the book why sully your hands on bycatch and guts and make a couple dollars an hour when you can be making mad bank all cash uh bringing in marijuana which a lot of people banked would be legalized and and it wasn't Jimmy Carter gave signals that it would be and so that feeds right into reefer madness in the mid 70s and a lot of these pot smugglers become big spenders at the club but then cocaine which is a novelty which just a handful of people were bringing in vials at a time or in a banana boat they realized that you could cut it you could step on it and it's so much more valuable per unit of weight less smelly uh gives you a high it combusts perfectly with sex you know you got downers you got uppers and everything and so cocaine madness a lot of these uh um, pot smugglers these marimberos became cocaine cowboys and uh even one that i spoke to was a uh, you know George Valdez was uh, a really prolific student uh, at the University of Miami's accounting program, and he's working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Miami, which has a $5 billion cash surplus by 1980. And of course, the Colombians court him to do money laundering, Like, come in, do a load or two, buy your mom a house, get out of the business, but nobody could leave it just at that. It was, it was unbelievable if you could get on consignment a five or $10,000 kilo from Peru or Bolivia. And bring it to Miami and step on it, you know, cut it with enough baby laxative that that kilo would be turned into three or four kilos and the street value is a half a million dollars. How does that not turn you on if you're, you know, if you don't have
1: scruples? (laughs) And then look at the, the market fluctuations. So, you know, talk about from, let's say, 1978 to 1988, how the price of a kilo of cocaine on the street went from hundreds of thousands of dollars to what, $20,000, $10,000.
2: Yeah. And that's why crack that, you know, you get into the new yeah. Jack city phase where you don't care as a wholesaler, if it's getting boiled down into crack, if people are, you know, basuco freebase. uh, by the time Willie and Sal are just smuggling, you know, they they were the ones that the pictures, biggest Coke deal. Los muchachos. The company. They're like, we'll give it to and we'll give it to anyone but at first it was considered a real high class thing i have this issue of playboy somewhere from 1975 which was like this almost like this pulitzer submitted treatise on the beauty of cocaine dentists use it, uh, it there's no addiction issues no hangover issues all this revisionism talking about the inca you know the, the bolivian farmers who could go for days without food and deal with oxygen levels and thomas edison used it and sigmund freud Freudio. and so that spirit of revisionism It was in the air and then definitely within 10 years it went from that to crack.
1: And I believe in 1982 or 83, playing off the the Playboy article, there was a front page story in Time magazine with a a martini glass filled with white powder or champagne glass filled with white powder with like an olive sticking out of it. And the headline was like, you know, cocaine is the new uh, status symbol. Cocaine's the new alcohol. That's right. About a year
2: after a year after Miami was paradise lost on the yeah. cover of Time right. Rating, you know, <laughs> of the cocaine murders. But
0: there, there is interesting intersectionality here that both of you have, have addressed, but it's kind of interesting to, to bring up again. So, like, you, you have the paradigm shift. So, like, you have marijuana, which is more chill, more stoner rock and roll. And then it sort of makes sense then that cocaine is going to be more bougie and disco right <laughs> like like you have wealthier more people violent. dance all night and like
1: um more erratic
0: yeah yeah it just it just it makes sense that that like culturally the music and and the confluence of all that at the same time sort of makes sense maybe maybe in real time it didn't but now looking back on it it makes sense to me the shift from like stoner rock and marijuana to to coke and disco
1: the 70s was was sleepy Right, you know, The eighties was right, right. party <laughs> twenty-four-seven and what I mean, fuel right. yourself with with powder and yeah. and you know, think about consequences after you've done the deed. Yeah. Not before.
2: Yeah. No, it's hilarious. One of our one of the sources, one of the sources was a cocktail waitress at the club, and she's had an issue when she got into the, the, the cocaine that the gums would get really swollen. And so she needed to get them excised. And her dentist noticed that and It's like, listen, you gotta be careful using this stuff. By the way, do you have a good hookup for this stuff? Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same breath people were saying that back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: um, so I was gonna say, like, because you brought it up, Robin, um, I know we're gonna we're we're gonna get to the eighties and 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 you know, I want to talk about the how the Colombians getting start to, to make a push in Miami, not just the suppliers, but but the the point about the CIA stuff is really interesting. Um when you read about how the, this kind of political criminal nexus of anti-Castro exiles and the the, the drug trade and just other like uh, more traditional rackets too, and um, I think that that's underappreciated. And and when I was reading your book, I I, I it reminded me of I know you were you were going in a, ultimately a different direction, but Gary Webb's reporting on Dark Alliance. Like San Jose. And, and, yeah, on and the Contras and this this yeah. kind of parallel of like these basically CIA operatives are involved in all these shady things and they basically get A free pass from at least the feds as you point out in your book robin i mean some of the local pd and some of the sheriff's guys i mean there was some crunch by the means but they were they were they were going like you have the one part in the book where i think the the one detective from miami says i don't give a fuck about the cia because they they were sort of had this get out of jail free and i I think that's sort of underappreciated I, i encourage people to look at your book even for just for that um it was pretty sketchy like that political criminal nexus if you want to
2: comment on that robin and yeah, one of the cliches is if you go back and look at the Kerry report and the one, uh, the one young attorney who realized that all these guys who were showing up with cocaine busts in the late '80s at, at uh, you know, Miami's federal penitentiary were like, "Hey, buddy, but I was, I was, I was a patriot. I was doing it for the CIA. <laughs> like it was reflexive to say I was working. You know, it's not about money. It's about, you know, it's about taking out Castro. It's about." You know, I think in Willie's testimony, it was Adnan Khashoggi, the famous uh, arms smuggler, the Iran-Contra arms smuggler who testified on his behalf. And so a lot of these guys have have invoked that. And it was really murky. If you go and read the history of George Morales, Mm -hmm. the cocaine smuggler who was at the hotel, who John Kerry— uh, at the Senate, had him come and testify in 1987, and these people, a lot of them said, "I was working at the behest of the CIA because we were trying to arm the Contras." And yes, if you look the other way, there's a triangular trade with weapons and cocaine, and you know we were just doing what we were doing. And and uh, you go back and look early at that at that and how Congress tried to restrict the Reagan administration from sending direct resp- uh, you know direct aid to the Contras. There's definitely a pungent you know cocaine taste to the iran contra affair it's not always appreciated
0: no, but that I, was I a agree. big
2: leg of the triangular trade you talk about gary webb
0: yeah yeah i mean and we and we talked about this we we another one of our episodes we interviewed uh yohan uh, grillo who's the narco reporter in mexico city and we talked about that that maybe maybe gary webb maybe overstated some things and didn't, didn't quite cross-reference all of his sources but the but the the heart of his story is true—that there were CIA-sponsored uh, Contras who were involved in drug trafficking—and it seems like it didn't bother the CIA. Uh, That—that's true, and we we see a parallel with the the Cuban exile guys um, involved in some sketchy stuff. And and another thing that's interesting—I know we're kind of jumping all over, but it's just, there's just a lot to talk about in the book. But the cultural differences you point out in your book, like with with, with the Cubans, it was different than like the Italian mafia, where if a guy has a reputation as a um, a guy who's talking to law enforcement, like an Italian mafia, like you'll, you'll probably get whacked. Right. But like Morales, you were talking about like, everyone knows that this guy is not only involved in drug trafficking, but he, but he's, he's really connected to the CIA. He's providing information intel to the local police department. And yet like he he gets away with it. And like, everyone knows about like, like he's like a triple agent. The culture, the criminal subculture is very, is very different in Miami than what we think of like traditional organized crime.
2: I don't know if you want to comment. Yeah, on that, I had right? his son on my. I had his son Rick Morales Jr. on my radio show this week. Oh, wow. uh, talking about how his father played all sides of the law and how the father he never knew growing up, but now he's piecing together the pieces of kind of his tormented life, and that's what he is. If you go and you do all these tours, you're trained by the CIA. You're trained in demolitions and all this stuff. You're really valuable as an intelligence source. And and Morales, you know, Ricky Monkey Morales in his private diaries and everything he hated selling his hands on drug dealing but he knew that that's where his skills were really valuable when the cold war was on pause in the carter administration was as an intelligence person as a as a get out of jail free card maybe in the eyes of certain drug dealers but of course he could turn that around and he could bite you you know you never knew which rick morale, which Ricardo morales you were dealing with so a lot of people occupied those worlds there was a um, uh, the very famous, the, the godfather, El Padrino of Miami is uh, Alvaro Cruz, the big prolific pot smuggler, was CIA trained. A lot of these Bay of Pigs guys, you know, they, they moved on to this. You can read the book The Corporation was another Bay of Pigs guy who got into the, you know, I had, I had the author, TJ English, on my show. He got into the bolita racket. A lot of this was, you know, as one great criminal defense attorney said in my book, um, have you ever washed a rental car? And so these guys were not here for keeps, right? <laughs> Why aren't they just going to have fun, and make money for the time being? You know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And um, it's interesting, like with Morales too. Like not only did it not only did not bother some of the other traffickers that he was like this triple agent, but in fact, some of them thought like we should be connected to him because this this could benefit us too. When we get when we get busted, inevitably we get busted. He's got all these like CIA connections that could actually benefit us. So it actually it didn't hurt him at all in some ways it's really remarkable like a di- the different criminal subculture how they viewed that
2: well a lot of them a lot of them were strategic informants i mean think about it they're called the tres letras the fbi the dea even the irs the three letters right uh, mpd miami police department and so if you're carlene Casada, the kingpin who passed away recently who sat at their table he could be providing information to the irs on another pot smuggler if you are uh Ricardo Morales or another largely nonviolent cocaine dealer, which was a rarity back then, you could be offering critical information, a homicide on a Santeria killer or a person out there. So you, as an overwhelmed detective, are picking your battles in 1980, 1981 Miami. I could bust these guys or I could let them kind of largely be left alone, salutary neglect, what do they call it, and, and use them for great info. Uh, to bust more dangerous people. There's no way, you know, as one homicide detective put it, it's like pushing sand against the tide uh, to, to put a dent into these cases. So I really have to truly pick my battles.
1: Well, I'll tell you, and I, and I I try to express this whenever the subject of informants and intelligence sharing between the street and law enforcement comes up. And I know the there's this romanticized narrative that, you know, only the the most, you know, cowardly of criminals are, are, are rats or are cooperators. And I will tell you from my research, whether we're talking about, you know, cocaine cowboys, or you're talking about the Italian mafia, or you're talking about Why, Afri- Whitey Bulger. Yeah, Whitey or you're talking about any any type of organized crime. It's not the exception. <laughs> it's the rule. <laughs> and I would say that 85% of the people that you think would never talk are talking now? Does that mean that those people will ever go on a witness stand and point a finger in open court? No, but almost everyone is giving information that they think that can benefit them and leverage their interests. And you know, it, it harkens me back to one of my favorite movies that, that's about the '80s and about greed and money and Wall Street when when michael douglas's character gordon gecko says the most valuable commodity in life is information <laughs> it's yeah. not it's not yeah. it's not ta- it's not a tangible good necessarily so and and these yeah. these major criminals understand that i mean they didn't get to the point that they are in the criminal f- food chain or the pecking order without being smart yeah. so you know, but witness and informant execution certainly happened with the Cuban mob
2: down there. You yeah. see it from the 1960s all the way up to the present. If you look at the Willie and Sal Yeah, they killed a, they and killed the a lawyer. And the, right? You know, and
1: William, the thing that happened Sal- in, the,
2: in the late 80s and early 90s. Well, that's, that, it, was, it was read as the Colombian cartel came and saw that it could have been, you know, when you start to get on the brink of the extradition era yeah. under the Bush administration, that they realized that he was a critical cutout person, this attorney Acosta, It was the Colombians who sent hitmen to Miami to take out these people who were going to inform
1: on their top salespeople. So it wasn't necessarily Willie and Sal, but but Willie and Sal were implicated in it. Well, Sal, I mean, the thing, the amazing thing is Sal gets 200 years,
2: but he was ultimately convicted for money laundering. Right. You know, there was jury tampering. He never got convicted for murder or Willie. Um, So that's that's the interesting thing but you certainly it was Miami Vice like in the late 80s and early 90s when you saw all these witness disappearances and witness hits and so and which is ironic because these guys made a name for themselves at the mutiny as the exception to the rule it's like listen you can be loved it's our party uh, as one as one affiliate doper said a sentence worse than death is to be blacklisted from our ongoing party we didn't have <laughs> to kill people we could pay them off but 10, 15 years later, people started dying.
1: So let's take a step back and we were talking about the, the first era of the mutiny and the and the the uh, maybe the, the foundation being laid for the cocaine cowboys, but then we've made a couple references to uh, Willie and Sal, and let's try to flesh that out a little bit more and give that some color for our audience and I'll give a quick primer and then I'll throw it to, to Jimmy and, and Robin to, to finish it up, but for people that didn't, for people that don't know, so you had that, you know, that early era uh, with a lot of uh, Venezuelans and and people that uh, weren't native or hadn't spent hadn't spent most of their childhood in actually Miami, um, and then you fast forward into the mid to late 1980s, and you have this group known as Los Muchachos or the cor- or, or the company. Uh, start popping up, and there are two childhood friends that were both uh, of Cuban descent. I think they might have been were they born in Cuba and came over here at a very young age. They were both born. So. They
2: were both they were both born in Cuba, That's and they right. came
1: over, but they grew the up. Children in, of Miami. They grew up in Miami. Yeah, their and childhood they,
2: was in Miami, and
1: they uh, right. were were classmates at Miami Senior High School. Um, and by the end of the decade, they were the name on the marquee and these were younger guys that were kind of cut from a little bit of a different cloth than the OGs that had started the era and, right. and it, it, they were kind of the young hip scarfaces after scarface so can you can, you know kind well, it wasn't of t-
2: even scar- wasn't quite what wasn't quite scarface yet but these are the guys who they uh, you know stoner stoner 70s all did weed pick up basketball miami high started really feeling their oats kind of as children of miami where everything for their parents and grandparents was death to castro and uh rematch these guys are like you know what speed boats and gorgeous women and playing hooky it's not so bad in the meantime and uh when they got a foot in the door at the mutiny uh they saw some of the og money and they said i want to do that and these guys got lucky uh, with a doper, George Valdez, the guy I talked about from the Federal Reserve Bank, who, when he had to kind of hang low, he gave them an order on consignment and they ran with it. And they were, um, again, love and sex, not war. They paid on time. They threw crazy parties. With, they would called the Hare Krishna upstairs. They paid off cops. They um, just, you know, dated mutiny hostesses and bought them all sorts of jewelry they were known on the speedboat racing circuit as like the guys you would always see in the keys and when they were ESPN world they were world, champ- to-
1: they were world champions, right?
2: Yeah, Sal was a world champion and his coterie and his people were world champions. And so it's very much the Miami Vice motif, right? The the speed boating, you know, Crockett and tubs, pastel colored, pink covered islands and everything. And the Scarfaces who came in were the Mariel refugees by nineteen eighty. If you're coming in on the Mariel boat lift, and literally I've had people tell me this, like you have this name, find Falconer or Magluta at the mutiny, because that's your ticket out of poverty. It's like coming in to Manhattan in the late 19th century and knowing that this person, well, this godfather would take care of you, right? If you could get a hold of this person in the Bronx and the Lower East Side. And so they did. They took Mariel refugees kind of under their wing. Willie was notorious for picking up the newspaper in 1981 and 1982 and seeing uh, Cubans who just got arrested on petty theft and all these other things and agreeing to bail them out. He was very much a godfather-type figure, and they hired Wichi Escobedo. Uh, they partnered with Coca-Cola Yero. all these Mariel refugees who came in who literally had nothing, not even the shirts on their backs, but if they did get a hookup with the muchachos who were running supreme at the mutiny by 1980, they knew they were golden.
1: So the muchachos were, the pre-Scarface were hanging out at the mutiny. In my mind, I guess I messed the timeline up. I'm thinking that Los Muchachos are, are showing up on the scene in like 83, 84, 85. But I'm wrong with that timeline.
2: No, they they really they really rose to the occasion in 78 and 79
1: okay. through George Valdez. Okay.
2: And they were primed by the time the Mariel Boatlift happens in 1980 and the old guard turns on itself. You know, they start testifying on each other and it just mm. fell apart. These guys are faster, hotter, smarter. They pay on time. They don't inform as much. They're much more patched into the Colombians, who realized they needed uh, they needed connected guys who were good good for the money. And they got this hookup of a lifetime. Like Medellin decides, we want to work with Willie and Sal. Uh, you know, later it's uh, Cali works with Man- Willie and Sal, and so they were in a great place to pick and choose anyone who wanted who showed up for the Mariel Boatlift, the Tony Montanas of 1980 who wanted to work for them. But by and large, they didn't hire hitmen. They hired guys who would run speedboats. They hired jocks who would play softball with them opposite the mutiny, right? It was this, um, it was a bizarre kind of uh, Pax Pax Romana, Romana, just as Miami was turning into the murder capital. It was this real dichotomy.
0: So um, it's also interesting, like, because I want to get to eventually when it, things turn real violent, but uh, at this point it's still like the party, as as you were, as you pointed out. So um, even like the business interest in Miami tolerated this, right, Robin? Because they built money, it, it built the business right, industry, the, the, the money laundering, right? right? I mean, they're using this for for housing development, yeah. uh, c- construction, it financed everything right. that you saw, skyscrapers, in,
1: everything you saw in that South Beach era that exploded in the early '90s had been built by Cocaine Cowboy money. Right, so the Chamber of Commerce, in other words, is, right, they're tolerating this too, right?
2: There's cocaine. Yeah. Well, it's great money if you think about all the banks popping up on Brickell Avenue, the, the Wall Street of Miami, the Park Avenue of Miami. If you think about, you know, I had one prolific pot dealer tell me that he walked into this bank with all this cash. I think it was in 77 or 78, and they have just this panoply, at night, uh, uh, in the back room, behind this like heavy metal door. They have, Dozens and dozens of people with cash counting machines, and just, the tch, 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 tch. but then, also the smell of smoke because they were authorized to throw these clearly fake bills into this this pyre, in the middle and burn it, and that's it. You saw that in the movie. People with duffel bags of cash showing up at banks in 1980 and 1981. These coin operated banks. And Willie and Sal were in cahoots with a corrupt banker, Ray Corona. Um, and all these banks that popped up on Brickell Avenue, as, as you know, if you see the movie Cocaine Cowboys, I think it was the late doper John Roberts. It's like, do we have any industry here that it warrants having all of these banks? Do You ever <laughs> ask yourself why like, right. 500 banks?
1: Where all this money and coming Yeah, from?
2: they're coin And there are these great photos that the IRS and Operation Bunko and, and everybody took in the late 70s of little old ladies with suitcases and cardboard boxes full of cash. They were called Smurfs. They get paid by the kingpins to take them to these random bank, bank branches uh, off of Brickle, like off the grid a little bit. And, and soon money laundering statutes caught up with that.
0: So everyone's they're all having a party. Money's flying. Um, and as long as too, not too many bodies are piling up, uh, the establishment in Miami, political establishment, financial establishment, they're tolerating this. But then the, the Colombians show up. And and you talk about this in your book, not not just as suppliers, but they show up in Miami and they and they want to get in at at a what, what would you say like a distributor
1: level. They, they wanted to muscle their way into the yeah. entire industry. Yeah, so th- and they started you know chainsign people.
0: Right. So then yeah, talk about that, Robin. Like in your book, how when the Colombians show up, they they have a different way of handling business than the than the, the Cubans were, right?
2: Yeah, I mean if you look at Cocaine Cowboys too, hustling with the Godmother Griselda Blanco, who also. Had a habit of showing up at the mutiny. This is someone who didn't want to just keep it as a corporation, as a company. It was personal with her. She killed people who looked at her funny. She killed uh, other subsidiaries or suppliers who she just didn't want to pay. She was very fickle. It certainly got really murderous by the time the Marielle refugee crisis happened in 1980, when 100 and, let's say, 100 and 10,000 refugees come in over six months, some of them violent criminals. Some of them had the uh, uh, weapons of choice tattooed on the inside of their lips to telegraph how badass they were. Um, the Colombians reasserted themselves with the Dave Land Massacre, but a lot of that was Colombian on Colombian crime. But then some of these less, less uh, long-term-minded Col- Cubans decided maybe we could do rip-offs, maybe we could cut quarters, maybe we could double-sell kilos and then so the, the level of Wando on Wando homicide by nineteen eighty one just became so staggering that infamously uh, the County Morgue had to loan refrigerate borrow refrigerated trucks from the local Burger King corporation. Um, it was just so overwhelmed. It was it was the homicide capital of the hemisphere.
1: And it was brazen. I mean I think that aspect of it it wasn't just organized crime gangland hits. But you had these just very outlandish circumstances. I mean, I can remember in the Cocaine Cowboys movie, uh Rivy talking about how Griselda wanted them to kill this guy in the middle of the airport. And like <laughs> yeah, it, well, that's right. it, with a
2: bayonet. Right. With and it's bayonet. like, well,
1: you're so you're just asking to be arrested <laughs> and sent to prison because there's no way you're gonna maneuver your <laughs> maneuver your way, yeah, maneuver your so, way out of an so. airport after you've killed someone in it. Right?
2: And so you talk to a few of those hitmen; men, these male guys are like, listen, I'd sooner get three square meals in prison and the, the enemy I know out here versus inside versus likely getting killed out here by a bunch of people who have grudges from inside the prison of Castro that are following me in downtown Miami. It was truly a failed state, as I like to say, by 1981.
1: And then you had the situation on, on I, I don't have my notes in front of me, but there was a, a tragic, tragic situation with, with the uh, Griselda crew where she put a hit out on someone and they didn't end up shooting the guy that they wanted to kill they ended up killing his like 2 year old
0: Oh, it was the whole family, right? Child. Did they massacre the whole family or something like that? Yeah.
1: And they and then the they, they killed the 2 year old pop. That yeah. was the difference. That yeah. was the difference I think between the
2: Colombian Colombian cartel and the Cuban mafiosi, you know, largely family was off limits to the Cubans. There was that honor. Again, go back and listen to uh, Ricardo Morales Jr's uh interview that i did this week um there was there was honor and i I mean going back to informing a lot of them more understood where it was grounds for execution and and i think you know if you look at the five the five mob families and everything in new york or you watch Fear city with the cubans they realize it's nothing personal yes if i find out you're informing on me am i liable to hit you sure but i realize we're all doing it and i realize we're all doing it for self-preservation and it's not immediately immediate grounds for execution.
0: So w- how did the political landscape change um, when it becomes more violent, whether, e- in this case, the Colombians, um, was there pushback within the political establishment that maybe the party has gone on too long, even though it's financing all this economic development, but, but now you have bodies, like we can't even, the, the, we, the morgue isn't big enough to, to fill up all these bodies. What was like the political backlash and financial backlash down in Miami at that time?
2: That time magazine cover, I think it was November of 91. It said paradise lost, really solidified it. Um, You know, Miami is a tourist capital. You just really don't want anything like that. You don't want everyone thinking, especially, you know, everybody knew that Scarface, the film was coming down the pike and the Cuban exiles in Miami fought it tooth and nail. We don't need this. We need to reinvent. We need to come out of this. There's, nascent whispers of an art deco revival and they got kicked uh, am i right
1: the production got kicked out of miami and had to shoot all those scenes under the la expressway that they were trying to make it seem like it was the freedom town that was uh, a setup for the for the cuban exiles or the cuban refugees but they had to re uh, i think they started shooting there for a day or two and some of the kingpins were like Yeah. yeah it's not a good idea for you to stay here because we might shoot up the set
2: yeah, Marty Bregman and others were chased. Brian De Palma were really chased out of town. And and De Palma and um, Stone and Pacino and Pfeiffer and, uh, um, you know, Stephen Bauer, who is yep. a regular at the Money. Mutiny, they were all doing their research at the Mutiny. And they asked to uh, to shoot some of the movie at the Mutiny. And the guy's are like, we need this like we need another bullet in the head. Are you kidding me? But you'll notice that Bregman saved De Palma save the prominent uh, middle finger for Miami and making South beach ocean drive infamous with that yep. chainsaw and bullet scene. So uh, most of the film was shot in SoCal.
1: Can we talk a little bit about um, the inspiration for the actual Tony Montana character? I know there's been some names yeah. thrown out. I don't think it was one guy, but I think it was probably a composite of, of multiple Kingpins. I know Rudy Redbeard was someone that they thrown out there as a as a name of a guy that, uh, that 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 inspired the character, and then the guy from, um, the guy from the Tiger King. Tiger King. Uh, Mario, yeah, Mario, Mario Tabrow. Tabrow. Um So, you, who who from your research? Who who were the? Which, by the
2: way, I I think I think it was Mario that picture that I had of there, and also the, the Mario had this throne. This um, is it called the throne? Yeah. That said, MT with those right. very letters. Right. They inverted to TM. PM exactly. And yeah. the- um, Tony Montana had leopards on his ground, tigers. Mario had animals left and right. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, I met him at I met him at his in his compound in his zoo. Very friendly person, very wonderful and and great with me. Uh, but I had to meet him in the presence of of a Florida panther and a, and a bald eagle. I believe he called Evander because it chewed off a man's ear. Um, it was a it was a gut check for me, uh, but I you know I think the look was based on Mario the but he was much more of a quiet person. If you look at a scene, if I take a picture of the Babylon Club, and you take Tony Montana and Frank Lopez, and who was the other guy who won an Oscar for Amadeus? Uh, uh, Mer- F. Marie Abraham. F. Murray Abraham is a ringer for Monkey Morales. Yeah. Frank Lopez is a ringer for Carlene Casada. Uh, Tony Montana looks so much like uh, Mario Browi did in 1981 and 1982. And you can't help but wonder, you know, if these guys go and uh, they're scouting at the mutiny, and there's a scene I was seeing on Scarface where they're all asking for the same vintage of Sh- Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 64, <clears throat> right? They're all speaking from their phones at their tables. And if you look at the screenplay, just pull it up. Stone accidentally references the Mutiny Club several times when he meant to reference the, the Babylon. Babylon. And as he, describes, as he describes the mutiny, it's almost like one-to-one. So it has to be that inspiration for it. In the end, they recreated it at this restaurant up in uh, Broward Palm Beach that doesn't exist anymore, and so much of it was on that sound lot in L.A. You
1: know, Tabrow, they, they would call him the Cobra because he would smuggle his drugs in the bodies or in the inside snakes and would have well
2: it was i think operation cobra but the thing about him is this is where you need to separate you know art, you know art imitating life and, right. and fiction he is a true animal lover right no i know that guy's passion that's if why he was on Tiger. that was why he was a- on tiger king but that's what his passion is right. he knew of his father who was a major bay of pigs you know marijuana launderer briber of cops he was born into that and it was kind of a, a, a terrible crucible in the 1970s and he was a you know, marijuana and cocaine dealer and a big syndicate and everything. But his passion, you see him when he's with animals, when he's with little chimps. I'm not being an apologist or no, anything, no, but all these legends are like, oh, did he Did he fill, you know, Brazilian parrots full of condoms, full of cocaine? Like, all that is, you know... It becomes myth. Mythology starts to build. It becomes myth, and he's, uh, you know... Uh, There's just so many fascinating stories. One, where he took his divine, you know, his prov- providence when he found... A cash, a bag, like a Pan Am bag full of cash at the Mutiny Hotel behind the drapes. And he's like, The Lord wants me to bo- go buy a shrimping vessel and learn to smuggle more. You know, like that kind of crap happened. Um, it's just fascinating.
0: Was that the guy I don't remember that in the book where he finds the, the cash and then he decides to buy a uh, a gold chain or a medallion for his chimpanzee? Was that is that the same
1: well, guy? Married to bro- yeah. Okay.
2: Mario <laughs> yeah. Browie. Yeah. He's a chimp. He, the chimp was the chimp that would travel with him shotgun in his convertible Mercedes. And the valet would see it. Like, imagine this, like the, the chimp would be waving a Cuban cigar. He had a New York baseball cap on. He had a ladies Rolex presidential. He had a gold chain and everything. And people are like a chimp in diapers at a luxurious nightclub. And they would just shuttle back and forth because around the corner, he had this notorious mansion in coconut grove with all sorts of animals in it. and, so, yeah, all these people who got out of jail is like, you know, Tony Montana's based on me because I had a Bobcat, yeah. right? I was right. like, no, man. <laughs> no, I had a leopard. No, man. I had. So, you know, I, I believe it was a composite of, of and I could never get Oliver Stone uh, for the book. But there was a great book called Scarface Nation where the Ken Tucker interviewed him and he talked about his experience at the mutiny. And he was coming off of his own cocaine addiction. Yeah.
1: Um, and he wrote this in a period where he was trying to pursue sobriety. And he, I know he named the Tony Montana character after Joe Montana, who was his favorite NFL quarterback. And he was watching NFL quarterback. He was watching the 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 Dallas San Francisco the famous catch game in the, in the I believe it was January of '82 when he was. I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan, so. I, <laughs> and he was watching <laughs> hey, Joe Montana uh, have a historic uh, game-winning drive. And I remember an interviews said, I decided to name him the right. character of Montana. Last thing I'll, I'll uh, talk about when we're talking about uh, uh, Tabrow is so from a little of research that I've done, and a lot of it was based on on Robin's book as the main source material, um, it seems like the famous chainsaw scene from Scarface was inspired or based on an incident where Mario Tobrow had to go to prison uh, for a murder conspiracy. They murdered a DEA informant named Larry Nash, Two of uh, uh, Tabrow's uh, lieutenants uh, shot Nash to death in a car, and then uh, picked up Mario Tabrow and they rented a hotel room and chainsawed him uh, and set him on fire in the hotel room. Um, one of the people. No, it
2: wasn't a it wasn't a hotel. It wasn't a hotel room. Okay. It wasn't a hotel Correct room. Me. It was out in a, it was out in a horse feeding trough. Okay. And some guy went out and bought kerosene, but I don't know if one one did the other. I mean. Um, the guy, the guy, uh, what's his name? The frog, the the guy with the chainsaw. What was his name? In the you mean in the
1: movie? In the movie, In the yeah. Scarface film. Al,
2: Al Israel. Right, right. Al Israel. Yeah, right. Al Israel. Actually, actually, a Jewish actor who loved to die in at the mute. Wasn't he a Jew? wasn't he a Cuban? Wasn't he a Cuban Jew? I don't know if he was a Cuban Jew, but again, they they had him opposite Al Pacino in another movie. Yeah, in, he, in, Carlito, in, in Carl,
1: No, he was in Carl, Carlito's Way. He played yeah. Ramon Riva. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But this all this all went down, you know, to uh, the scene on Ocean Drive and the famous, uh, you know, chainsawing. I don't know if the two were linked. I mean, it was certainly infamous that came out, the chainsawing of uh, Larry Nash, the DEA informant. And a lot of it was mutiny linked, mutiny hotel linked. But I don't know where he got that inspiration for. It certainly was in the news.
0: The, the senior
2: returns. Rolando Car- Rivas
0: and Carlito's w- way when he when Carlito says I'm retired and the, and the guy's like you're retired, retired. <laughs> and he
1: starts laughing. He said I say a prayer for <laughs> yeah. harm come to those
0: who harm you. Yeah, let, let me ask you, Ramon, about uh, another pop culture situation. Um, and I, I uh, my research more is involved with the researching the Italian mafia. So with with the Godfather film, it, initially there was the same response that the, the the New York mafia. They did not want that movie to be made. They were hostile in a lot of ways. But then once the movie comes so out. Didn't
2: they agree to not say mafia? Yeah, no, they did, right? To they say, the say the family.
0: Yeah, they did. And, and actually, I think mafia is only mentioned maybe in part two. They, it was the first time they even used that word, uh, right? It was during the congressional right. hearing. So so, so they were able to get some, um, uh, right, the Puzo. and Yeah, right, concessions from. But then when the film comes out, they, they do a 180, right? Then all the wise guys love it. Right? They don't have a problem with it at all. In fact, they embrace it. They want the music played at the restaurants. Uh, they start internalizing some of the rituals and, and ceremonies and things that they saw in the film. Well, and cl- and like, just like
1: with Scarface, claiming that some of the characters were based yeah, we're on based, them. Yeah,
0: were based on them. So yeah. I, I wonder, was, was there a parallel situation where initially some of the, 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 the Cubans in Miami, they don't want Scarface to be made, but once the movie comes out and it becomes a cultural phenomenon, did they... Did they backtrack on that were they like oh yeah like this movie's like legit we love it was there that same kind of reversal like with the italians in new york
2: i'll say this not in the 1980s when it came out and those who weren't in jail inside said that what the hell pacino doesn't know how to do cuban this is so caricatured and everything they could recognize places like the mutiny they could definitely recognize michelle pfeiffer as the kind of a the coke trophy wife and some other caricatures uh but um I have to say that it had to age and it had to cure well into the 90s for these guys to get out of jail. And by the time they were forgotten, they would invariably tell you under their breath, you know, Tony Montana is based on me.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> and it was more out of kind of, a, you know, or or you'd interview some of them and they're like, why should I give you my story when when I get it published? Mine's going to be like Scarface on steroids. like right. <laughs> there's a sad, sad thing when these guys are much older, they're wearing tube socks up to their knees they're going to early bird dinner on coral way and you have to kind of really squint your eyes to imagine them as nefarious coke dealers in the mid 70s but they want that glory and they were like oh man tony montana you know it's a big deal they talk about him on sports center and all this stuff i see him <laughs> like you can't see breaking bad and not think about tony montana they use characters you know to right. uh, uncle uncle hector and breaking bad yeah. or the way it was pitched it's become such such a a cultural totem, as you guys say, that they long for that attention. Yeah. I mean the so I mean, hip hop. So it took a good 20,
0: 30 years. I mean uh, like the old school gangster rappers, I mean, worship Scarface a, is
1: a, also a famous rapper who took his name from Scarface.
0: Right. And there's an interesting, uh, Robin, right. are you familiar with um, uh, the book Gamora by what? what's the author? Gamora, Savino. Gamora. Yeah. Uh, Savino um, where he talks about the, the younger oh. generation of, of mafiosi in Italy. They jock Scarface, Scarface more than the more Godfather. Than the, Godfather. Godfather yeah. <laughs> the Godfather,
2: ironically, like the, the the younger generation of in Italy, right? No, Identify but more Cubans, Scarface. The Cuban mob, the OG, the OG at the Hotel Mutiny, especially with their traveling theme music. They, he said, I would light a candle for the Godfather anytime the Godfather would come on. Yeah, we just stop. I like, invite everybody to my house to watch it on the big screen thing. And the pianist for Rudy Redbeard, the traveling pianist who had his own suite at the Mutiny, uh, Sunshine Sammy would come down and commandeer the piano and play the theme from The Godfather. For, like you talk about, you know, art imitating life. Like yeah. they all looked at The Godfather. Yeah, there, there's the uh, Willie and Sal's people, not so much.
0: Yeah, there's the irony then you you talk about this in your book and we also know that Pablo as well that so that they actually Saddam Hussein. The the Latino gangsters Saddam Hussein that's right. Was they, obsessed actually, with the Godfather. they they were they they love the Godfather movie. More than the movie about the the
2: Latino, right. uh, so there is one then. there is one great exception, is the story of Coca-Cola Yero. Jose Coca-Cola Yero, the Mariel refugee who came here, I think it was nineteen or twenty, was Cuba's national bicycling champion. And he decided to storm the embassy in in uh, Havana, the Peruvian embassy. And he got he got his main hookup at the mutiny. And by the time he was busted in eighty five, it was the biggest Coke bust in in Palm Beach County history. They found him with um in addition to all the color-coated you know, coated suits and Rolexes and everything, he had his picture impersonating Tony Montana in a pile of Coke. <laughs> and so it's truly, you know, the DEA used that as evidence. Like, this guy thinks he's he's Tony Montana. But that's so strange that it's life-imitating art, which was imitating a composite of original gangster mutiny guys. So by then, it just kind of, you know... These guys, these Mariel
1: refugees were looking for Scarface. You know, a note sorry, Jimmy, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say in the book, you mentioned that I think it was some of the women that worked at the at the um, hotel there that they were friends with some wise guys, Italian wise guys in Miami. Uh, and you mentioned that that some of the Italian wise guys would hang out at the hotel as well. That's more of a social thing. Did you come across any examples where the Italian guys in Florida were had business arrangements with the Cubans? Uh, in terms of drug trafficking or the bolita, whatever?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Rudy Redbeard. Rudy Redbeard is a very important figure in this thing because he's installing vinyl tops and he's boat building in the early 70s, which was, you know, Miami and Miami Beach had a very vibrant mob scene. Uh, there was that famous mob hit, what was it, in North Miami? The yeah, guy found uh, a drum. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, Johnny, uh, Johnny Rosselli was found in Biscayne oh, yeah. Bay.
2: Yeah. Johnny Rosselli, the regular, was a regular at the hotel. Initially, it was a very white clientele. And the mobsters would be welcome there because there was a significant kind of Watergate CIA um, entourage at the mutiny. And if you know, like you go back, I love reading Havana
1: Nocturne about the, the shared English. history. Yeah, TJ English. I love TJ English. I stuff. do too. I, I, props, I'm a huge but, fan. I'm I, I'm eager to have him on this yeah, podcast. So TJ, come his his on the show yeah. if you see the,
0: if you listener. The, the, the Westies.
1: Family, his
2: family. Westies book was epic too. Patty Whacked is good too, yeah. But that's a, that's a real revealing, almost read it as a prequel, that, that um, a lot of these uh, Cubans, the old money gold ticket Cubans who came in the 50s and 60s, they were in cahoots with the Jewish and Italian mafia in Havana, the operators of the casino, the bribers of judges, the ones who would you know, pay for sugar plantations, dirty money, the bolita racket there. And so by the time that scene shifted to Miami... A lot of uh, uh, Cuban refugees in the 1960s, including Monkey Morales, were being hired by mobsters to perform hits and intimidation acts. And the whole gang reunited at the mutiny. Uh, Rudy Redbeard was installing vinyl tops for, um, it was a guy, I think, Anthony Abraham Chevrolet. And uh, the mobsters who would go there just suddenly somehow got him into the club. And he got into this club and he realized that he says, like, I was an economic refugee. By the time there was the oil crisis, I wasn't selling any boats. I needed a new commodity. I did it kind of reluctantly, and so I reluctantly became a cocaine pioneer in Miami. And the mob was all over that. In fact, you know, he had he had some hits placed on Italian people, and and, and vice versa. And he bought his suits from an Italian wholesaler. There was uh, a, a lot of people in those early, you know, DEA, CIA reports. But by the mid to late '70s, the Cubans completely took over that club and the Italians went decidedly
1: underground. I'm not trying to disrespect Italian mobsters because it's my bread and butter and I've made my career and my brand on Italian mobsters for the most part, but just for people to have some context, you know, the Italian mob doesn't hold a candle to these Latino gangsters in terms of ruthlessness, in terms of, Willingness to do anything for the bottom line in terms of just sheer, you know, just just, just sheer criminality. Uh, well, I would say Italian-American, not... Right, no, no, not, right, not, that's <laughs> what I mean, right, that's what I mean, right. Italian-American. Not, because yeah. not, right. over in Italy and yeah. Sicily, it's different. So, uh, I think John Roberts uh, echoed that sentiment in, in the first Cocaine Cowboys, too, and he had been someone who had grown up in the Italian mafia or jewish italian mafia in new york and he was like it was like night and day going from dealing with the wise guys in new york to dealing with the colombians and cubans and venezuelans in uh in miami
2: i think the colombians
1: the, by the time the colombians truly hit the scene
2: it was decidedly violent and colombians using and uh uh, uh dueling with uh uh mariel refugees a lot of you know many of whom were were criminals on the inside in cuba that's when it really became dangerous. I still think that there's an older guard that at least of Cubans and OG, OG, and, and there was some overlap with the Willie and Sal people that are like, why kill when you can bribe? You know, and that that's a tradition that goes back to Cuba where everybody was for hire.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with, I know we're going to, you know, this is getting real academic here, but a lot of it has to do with e- economic development because- the early Italian immigrants in the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s were extremely violent. I mean, Prohibition, and they were killing each other. At, you know, uh, the Jewish gangsters, Irish Italian, they were killing each other like crazy. But, but then you have the theory of the ethnic— They got civilized. Right, the ethnic—was uh, uh, the ethnic succession theory that, like, as, as you become more assimilated, right, have more economic opportunity, social mobility, even if you're still a racketeer or a gangster— it it, it's, it starts to become less bloodthirsty, right? And it's more about like the the business kind of thing. So I think it would make sense that the first generation of Latino gangsters uh, w- would be more violent um, because they have less to lose, <laughs> right? As opposed to once you get assimilated and you build up all this wealth, and you know,
2: you know, were these guys these Italians who came in late nineteenth century, early twentieth century to the United States, Scott? I mean, were they were they keen on hell bent on winning back Italy? I think a lot of these Cubans were and they were they had a chip on their shoulders and they were trained and the CIA fed that and fed that bloodlust and a lot of these guys they'd go practicing with their fathers in the Everglades you know handling uh, M7s or whatever they were in their childhood and their adolescence and when that didn't happen uh, a lot of these guys started bombing each other and started bombing post offices and clinics that were suspected of dealing with Cuba and only a few of them successfully sublimated that into marijuana and cocaine and real estate and now are more politically active in, in Cuba, let's say, in, in Miami with the GOP and, you know, having uh, money laundering fronts. It's a, it, it, it's a, it's a several-step progression that took over 50 years.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, tell us about, like, uh, as we're getting close to finishing up here, um, you were talking about how the the book, if it wasn't as well-received as you, as you thought, um, or and, and we think that it deserves to be. I have to imagine there's been some interest in visualizing this as a TV show or a film. Please tell me that, that there's something like that in the works, Robin, because it really deserves it.
2: Well, thank you. It was optioned a month after it came out in November of 2017, and nothing was done with it, and I had to win back the option. And I know. I, I know all about that. Hopeful though, I've I've learned to be a lot more. You know it, and I, I, I was listening that to a podcast last week. Yeah, Silicon Valley people's like I've never made a dollar in L.A. because people promise you the yep. world. They nibble on your ears. Yep. They say everything, but and you're, do, you're doing the, you're doing them a favor by, by talking on
1: the phone. <laughs> they're sorry, they're doing you a favor yeah. by even having a conversation. But I'm hopeful,
2: and I left so much on the cutting room floor to deliver a book of this size. It's still big that I'm so hopeful that all of us will be able to see it on screen somehow, either
1: or both as a doc or a scripted series. Wait, Robin did, uh, who optioned it? Can you say,
2: uh, it was a, a company called stone village. They okay. did the, the chef and empire falls and others. And I just think they didn't, I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes.
1: They were trying to make it into a television show or a film, a series. Okay. A premium, yeah.
2: premium series. There was a deadline article and everything, but I'm now, yeah talking to some people who I think I'm you know I, I don't know I don't know I try to curb I i people ask me yeah. I don't know if this is germane to the conversation it is I, I I think about my time since graduating from college and everything and I go and speak to college kids and I always wish somebody would have held my hand me too talking to you good prof you know what is your advice to a person coming out of college like I would say my best advice to is almost a hashtag curb your enthusiasm yeah so many people flake so many people will promise you everything. I was so doe-eyed. Oh, wow, you're a career mentor on the alumni database. And I'm not bitter, guys. No, I'm not bitter. But, you know, oh, yeah. And then people would never contact you. People with job offers, people with book offers, literary agents and everything. And I, it took me a while to realize that that's the industry standard. That's the norm. And it wasn't anything about me personally. It's just the way certain worlds operate. And you have to have a higher tolerance
1: for It, it certainly is. And I can... I don't want to make this about me, but I'll just piggyback off that and say there are so many things in my last 10 years of life that I have legitimately signed a contract for. And the people on the other side of the contract are people that have done major things in the world of television and film. And you think that such in in your first the first instinct is that i've made it it's over with i've just signed (laughs) a deal with x person or y person and that is into the outside world it sounds like this really really big thing i had a i had a television deal with john legend for a year for a year and a half and i'm going around pitching in 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 studios with john legend and i'm like there's no way this doesn't succeed but it didn't succeed. One of the all the executives <laughs> were like, "We love John Legend. We love you, Scott Bernstein. We just don't see a you know, we don't see a match here. We don't we don't see John Legend telling stories about gangsters."
2: Or I, I was. And so t- the other the, uh, the adjunct on this would be not use your illusion, but use your delusion. Yeah, I'm I'm insistent. This book was naysayed so many times. Uh, it was such a fabrication. People are like, "No one's going to want to talk to you. No one's going to want to talk about a private club, Scarface." Ah. So many literary agents, if I show you the list of of reactions that they have, it's, it's too provincial. It's too glib. Nobody cares about this. And a lot of the same responses from TV people that there's, Oh, what is it going to do that Narcos hasn't done? (laughs) What is it? I, I love it. And I'm in it, you know, an inch, I'm in it a mile. And you know, uh, that's the beautiful thing about it. And it's not a, a financial proposition for me, you know, spending all those years reporting the book and making it. But when you have something that you, Love, and it's soulful, and it sticks to your ribs, and you truly put your blood, sweat, and tears and everything into it, and you were told so many times, and it doesn't have a commercial applicability, that it's there, that it's on the shelf, and I can still be proud of it whenever I pick it up, and I can still ask myself, when the hell did you write this? I don't remember writing that. You know that feeling, right? So. That's that I imagine that that's going to be my true north, my compass. And that whether or not it appears on TV, uh, you know, whether or not it's just me having these characters on my podcast or coming on your show and getting to talk about something that is a true labor of love for me. That's that's the long tail of this thing. You
1: know, here's one of my. Yeah, takeaways. Amen. Here's one of my takeaways from it. And, and I hope this comes true. And I hope this can put a little silver lining around it. And, and it's kind of inspiring. And it just dawned on me this kind of parallel. So people that understand the film industry and and understand the history of the film industry will tell you that when Scarface came out, it was hated and it was panned and it was thought of as a giant disaster. And in time, it became at the same level as Goodfellas and The Godfather, which were lauded the second it came out. So I hope... For, for the sake of people like us, and obviously for the, the author, who this is his baby, that this thing ages like a fine wine, and in 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, people, when they talk about the greatest books from this genre, and they talk about the greatest television and film shows based on books from this genre, people talk about Hotel Scarface because it is a film, or it is a TV show, or the book deserves, you know, gets a second life. I
2: so greatly appreciate that coming from you. Yep. You have to understand that's, that hits me right there. I'm so grateful for that.
1: Well, I mean, for, for a fellow author, I know what, all what it's like to put your everything into a book and give so much of your time and yourself and your energy, and then it's done, and it's on the shelf at a Barnes & Noble, and that by itself is exciting.
2: Not even. No, here's the thing. I never saw it once at a I never saw it once at an airport, and that broke my right, heart. Right, yeah, I that. thought
1: at the very least this would be. An but I and, would see it know, when that first a
2: whole bathroom.
1: When it first came out, that book and all the book because I'm a bookstore nerd and I still like to read uh, books in you know in uh, uh, live form. I don't like to read books on my phone. But I remember when that book came out, at least in the on the bookstore circuit in the true crime genre, I remember that book was pretty prominently displayed. In fact, yeah, I, I bought it right away. In Soon fact, I remember.
2: Out. I just wanted to walk up to an airport once and see it <laughs> yeah.
1: and buy beef jerky and enjoy yeah. it. now, <laughs> I remember I was actually in Miami the first couple months it came out. And I went into a bookstore in Miami. I had already read it on a trip because I loved it so much. And the guy knew me and my family, knew I was a crime writer. He's like, I got the best book for you to read, brand new book about crime in Miami. I was like, Hotel Scarface? He's like, <laughs> Hotel Scarface? He's like, I read it last week on a trip to L.A. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah,
0: I hope people. I hope people check it out. And, and I, the, when I was reading it, I thought, you know, Magic City. Remember they had that show, yeah. Magic City. Wasn't that what it was called? Yeah, On with
1: Jeffrey Swan. Dean How. Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, I, that show was okay. I felt like it could have been better. I mean, for, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. If, if I may be so bold, <laughs> yeah. not that I'm a TV critic, but when I was reading this, I was like, this this should be the TV show. Like this should like this is this is better suited for that medium than than the. Uh, it was like, like late 1950s or something yeah. The the
1: Magic City was set in, or 1960 or something like that. That bookstore I was in, to make it about me again, sorry, <laughs> that bookstore I was in was underneath Billy Corbin's office. Billy Corbin is the director oh, wow. of, of Cocaine yeah. Cowboys. And if you watch- Yeah, the... he wrote the intro to the book. Oh, yeah, right, right. He wrote the intro to the book and- he did the thirty for thirty on the U, which is one of my favorite thirty for thirties. And uh, there's a bookstore. Actually, I actually just heard it, that bookstore closed, unfortunately. But that bookstore was right underneath uh, Corbin's office, which I think is called Rakatour. uh Rakatour. Uh, yeah. yeah. Rackateur. Um But as we're as we're wrapping up, um, one little uh, little nugget of information that hasn't made it into a conversation, but I think is prevalent and uh, prevalent throughout the book and something that is very interesting and noteworthy so the mut the mutiny at its at its peak was selling more dom perignon champagne than any business in the entire world so like that was literally the epicenter of high class champagne was at the mutiny they were ordering hundreds and hundreds of pallets of bottles a week well because so much of it was used to fill a hot tub some guy had this great idea
2: this doper that why don't we fill up a hot tub and take a champagne bath even though it would singe your your privates (laughs) uh it was just a way of telegraphing that money didn't matter and i guess that's that's that world Yeah, it was um the conspicuous consumption
0: i mean you talk about that i mean the book you mentioned like cocaine capitalism i mean and so there's this sociological part of it that conspicuous consumption um what you know to to be more showy right um and that that's in movies like wall street and things like that right it was it was not just uh latino drug dealers but the 80s i mean that was a big part of it but um so robin we're happy to have you with us we really appreciate your time is there anything you want to plug to our audience uh before we sign off you want to point out your website and any other interesting projects you're working on you want to share with us
2: you can you want to you want to learn more about the book you can go to hotelscarface.com search the hotel scarface hashtag all over twitter facebook instagram the podcast is full disclosure it's on uh, apple podcast at fulldradio.com we've had many episodes with hotel scarface regulars including the most recent one on monkey morales's son and i'm hoping i don't want to jinx myself i'm hoping to have news for you guys soon about the book Awesome!
0: Oh, great! Right. Well, thanks for everyone for listening. We're, we're happy to have Robin Farzad. Is that correct? That I, I think I mispronounced it the first time. I, I'm I'm sorry. I know my, my last name Bucciolato, Nobody ever, <laughs> nobody ever pronounces it correct. They have a long Sicilian last name, so I I, I apologize. Meet this If I that's mispron- right. Um, and um, no, it's right. It's right. Oh, good, good. Thank you. So we're happy to have have you on. Really appreciate your time, people. Please go out and buy the book. Um, check us out on. Uh, uh, we'll have this up on YouTube eventually. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and spread the word about the OG podcast, Jimmy Bucciolato. Thanks for listening, Scott.
1: Last thing I'll say is if you're listening to this podcast, and I don't think... You would be listening to this podcast if you were not a Scarface fan because our fans are people that are fans of the movie Scarface. If you like Scarface, even the smallest amount, you are going to love Hotel Scarface the book. Do yourself a favor. Go get it. Either get it at a bookstore or download it and uh, just go out and appreciate the reporting and the vision that Robin had to, to put that narrative together because it's brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. Thank you, guys. All right, OG, we're out. We'll see you next week.